Donald Trump's questionable fundraising tactics are not exactly a new thing. And I mean, if it ain't broke. After all, he's turned his Manhattan indictment into a money-making juggernaut to the tune of $12 million plus. Just like he turned his last days in office into a cash bonanza while at the same time trying to subvert democracy. Which was pretty ambitious. I mean, some people might just try and steal an election and leave it there. But not Donald Trump. At the second January 6th hearing in Congress back in June, Representative Zoe Lofgren made a point of highlighting Trump's fundraising strategy. She called it the big ripoff. President Trump used the lies he told to raise millions of dollars from the American people. Throughout the committee's investigation, we found evidence that the Trump campaign and its surrogates misled donors as to where their funds would go and what they would be used for. So not only was there the big lie, there was the big ripoff. Well, now, according to The Washington Post, Mr. Trump's cash calls have caught the attention of special counsel Jack Smith. The Post reports that Smith has fired off a slew of subpoenas in recent weeks, all as part of his January 6th investigation looking to determine if former President Donald Trump or his advisors scammed donors by using false claims about voter fraud to raise money. It notes, special counsel prosecutors are said to be interested in whether anyone associated with the fundraising operation violated wire fraud laws, which make it illegal to make false representations over email to swindle people out of money. On this show last night, we played new audio of Trump advisors discussing the fact that they didn't know of any fraud with voting machines, while at the same time, The president and his allies were railing about election fraud and using those claims of fraud to raise over $200 million in the period between his 2020 election loss and Trump's eventual exit from office. So this reporting from The Washington Post is a big deal here because it marks a new chapter of the DOJ's investigation, which is now apparently not only focused on Trump's efforts to overturn the election, but is also looking into Trump's apparent grift alongside that. Could have just left it at stealing the election, but not Donald Trump. The recent flurry of subpoenas would seem to indicate that special counsel Smith is doing anything but winding down that investigation. Today, Trump's director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, testified before the January 6th grand jury in Washington, D.C. Federal investigators might want to talk to Ratcliffe about, among other things, conversations he had with Donald Trump in which the former president pressed Ratcliffe to investigate conspiracy theories regarding voting machines. Now, Trump had tried and ultimately failed to block Ratcliffe from testifying, and Ratcliffe is part of a gang of Trump aides who have been called before the grand jury, including this week Trump advisor and speechwriter Stephen Miller. The Washington Post also reports that Smith's other criminal investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago, well, that is humming right along. But that is not actually the legal headache that Donald Trump was focused on today. Today, Trump was deposed for a second time in the New York State Attorney General's sweeping civil fraud lawsuit. In September, New York AG Letitia James filed a massive $250 million civil fraud lawsuit accusing Trump, his adult children, and his organization of staggering fraud for overvaluing their assets by billions. Trump, before that deposition, he made sure this morning to call A.G. James a racist, because that appears to be his main line of defense here. 
Once he arrived at the AG's office, he was greeted with chants of, New York hates you. And then he spent nearly the entire day behind closed doors, staying inside for roughly eight hours. That is nearly double the amount of time he spent there during his first deposition back in August. A spokesperson for the New York AG's office said Trump spoke a lot, which is quite different from the last time he was deposed. Just two days after the FBI searched Trump's Florida home for classified documents, Trump sat for a deposition where he invoked the Fifth Amendment nearly 450 times. I respectfully decline to answer the questions under the rights and privileges afforded to every citizen under the United States Constitution. This will be my answer to any further questions. You are currently the president of the Trump Organization, is that correct? Same answer. You knew at the time it was finalized that the year 2019 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading statements, is that correct? Same answer. In preparing the 2019 Statement of Financial Condition, uh, Mr. Weisselberg and Mr. McConney worked at your direction and followed your instructions to inflate asset valuations on the Statement of Financial Condition by employing false and misleading assumptions, is that correct? Same answer. You heard Alan Weisselberg mentioned there, Donald Trump's longtime and now former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. Mr. Weisselberg is currently imprisoned over at Rikers Island for his involvement in the Trump Organization's tax fraud scheme, and he is scheduled to be released in just six days from now. We know that Mr. Weisselberg recently changed up his legal team after reports that the Manhattan DA's office may be looking to get Weisselberg's cooperation in its fraud case by pressuring Weisselberg with potentially more charges and more prison time. Now, Letitia James' lawsuit seeks to shut down at least some of Trump's businesses. It could be catastrophic for Trump. The suit is expected to go to trial later in October. And while this is a civil trial, over on the criminal side, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is still looking in to some of the very same allegations. Joining us now is Suzanne Craig, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for The New York Times, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Thank you both for being here. Joyce, let me, let me just start with you in terms of the, the legal implications today of the, fa- you know, the fact that Trump is speaking uh, in this deposition. Do you see anything particularly meaningful in that? So it's always a challenge when you have a client like the former president, who I think lawyers despair of having any client control over him, and he answers questions. What will happen now is uh, the attorney general's office will comb through the transcript. They will see if anything that the former president has said assists their case. But because this is a civil proceeding, they are also free to share this deposition with folks like Alvin Bragg, who may be looking potentially at criminal charges. It's tough to figure why Trump's lawyers would have let him go in and answer questions for more than seven hours. Yeah, seven hours (laughs) is a long time, Sue Craig. And as Joyce rightly points out, I'm sure Alvin Bragg is interested in what transpired today as well, right? How do you see the handshake between what Tish James, the AG, is doing and the fraud investigation that we hear is a live issue over in the AG's office, DA's office? Right. I think he's very interested in it. I think a lot of people right now are very focused on what Alvin Bragg is doing with the hush money payment. But there's a very separate case going on into the valuations that Tish James is looking at. We don't, we don't know exactly where that is at, but it was very live and well when Cy Vance was in charge of that office a year or so ago. And there's no reason to believe 
that it's been put off. I think it's right now on the back burner. But if I had to surmise or kind of guess, a bit of an educated guess about what they're doing, is Alan Weiselberg is in Rikers, and he is facing separate criminal jeopardy on a case that actually stems out of the Attorney General's case. And that is some misstatements that he made to Zurich. And he, he indicated to them at some point in conversations with him that appraisals that he was giving had actually been, you know, backed up with documents that they weren't. He misrepresented, gave them false information, which could get him in a lot of trouble. That's trouble called fraud over a million dollars. And he could actually do some hard time for that if that goes to trial and he's found guilty of it. So I think they're trying to apply pressure on him there to get him to cooperate on the, the on potential criminal um, case that he could, that Alvin Bragg could bring forward. And he could maybe get, Alvin, or, uh, Ellen Weiselberg could maybe get himself out of some trouble on that if he cooperates Do on you, the other one. I, we, I am always bringing up Alan Weiselberg, especially <laughs> when you're here, and I'm sort of obsessed, obsessed with him as the sort of the missing link in all of this, right? He and is, in the Hush Money case. In the which hush, is, yeah, he is, in, yeah, he is. He is directly mm, implicated that. in the Hush Money payments Right, and case. he didn't come forward on the grand jury on that, I'm surmising, because he would have been given immunity, but he could be a witness in that as well. I think Alan Weiselberg, probably maybe more than most people in this country, has a lot of decisions to make about how he's going to go forward. And I can't imagine he's in his 70s now that the idea of potentially spending what could be the rest of his life in jail, you know, for essentially protecting Donald Trump, he's got to decide what he's doing. And and those are kind of the pressure points on him. And he could be the witness that these prosecutors need. I mean, Michael Cohen is obviously a star witness, but a lot of people have cast aspersions on his just using him as a central voice for the prosecution. Weisselberg really is the the puppeteer in terms of the financial dealings of the Trump organization. It would be invaluable to Alvin Bragg's case and and any other case. Well, I keep thinking, too, too, with Alan Weisselberg, we just don't know the other avenues that he could open up. I mean, we kind of think very in a limited way, well, he could help with the hush money payment. There just could be other ways that we haven't probably even imagined that he can help. He is the keeper of the secrets of the Trump organization in terms of all the things that are now in play, either civilly or criminally. Joyce, from a legal perspective, just you know, for the layman, he is getting out of Rikers in a matter of days. He has changed representation. There is a lot that is being read into why he would be changing his counsel at this juncture. I mean, from your experience, given all that looms over him after even he gets out of Rikers, what are the implications of changing counsel at a juncture like this? Do you read anything into it? You know, there's been some reporting that suggests that the new legal team that he's he's now connected himself with is even more aligned with the former president. And that the one of the reasons he walked away from the prior representation is because there is a little bit too much conversation about cooperation. We don't know for certain that that's accurate. A lot of this involves reading tea leaves. But one of the enduring mysteries of every investigation into Trump has been the lack of people who are willing to cooperate. I mean, I can tell you that in 25 years as a federal prosecutor, when you look someone in the eye and tell them that they can be a witness or a defendant, they tend to take that very seriously. And many times you will end up with cooperation. When you're looking at a CEO of a corporation and you have CFOs, maybe over a period of years, who've been involved in the alleged fraud, 
those people will very often want to cooperate to minimize their own exposure to, to prison. So now we have Alan Weisselberg, who spent some time in Rikers, who could be looking at spending a lot more time in prison. If there's ever a moment where he's highly motivated, it's here. But he has persistently right. refused to cooperate over time. Yeah. I mean, Sue, you know who he is as a character in the Trump universe. He's been in intensely loyal to the Trump organization. He worked for Donald Trump's father. Does it ring hollow to you when folks suggest that maybe this is just because he's so loyal to Donald Trump? I, I think he's incredibly loyal. And I also think there's financial, you Incentive. know, right, right, right now the Trump organization is paying his legal be his legal fees, and they've also paid him handsomely over you know years and years and years up to through the trial. I just I just don't think you can know though. I mean, I just think it's a real unknowable. That's I think it it it. it perplexes a lot of people and a lot of people think about it because it's just you can just imagine this man sitting in Rikers and facing the rest of his life, life in jail, in, I, I think, or, it, or pass. I mean, or or turn on on somebody that he's been incredibly loyal to. And and, and just also, I think, imagining the, the things that Alan Weiselberg would have to admit about himself yeah. if he turned, I think, is another thing that's just this is just such a human decision. Yeah, a deeply human and an emotional, emotional uh, decision. decision. Yeah. I, I do want to talk as we talk about um, potential alleged grift and <laughs> fraud, Joyce, the investigation, uh, the special counsel's investigation into Trump's fundraising in and around January 6th and his claims of a stolen election. Um, as you as you see this, the legal implications of Jack Smith broadening that investigation, not just to be what Trump did to potentially overthrow an election, subvert democracy, but fundraise off of it, which I got to say, let's not lose sight of the fact uh, how ambitious that is, not just to steal the election, but to potentially raise money off of it. What legal peril does that add to the case here in terms of Donald Trump's exposure? Well, it adds a lot. Wire fraud is sort of a bread and butter crime for federal prosecutors, and it carries a maximum 20 year penalty. So it's serious business. It does something really important if Jack Smith is able to make it out and perhaps even if he doesn't charge it. And that's to help explain a motive because, you know, prosecutors don't have to prove a motive when you're looking at the overall criminal activity that someone is charged with. Motive is very rarely an element and it wouldn't be here. But motive satisfies juries' curiosity. A lot of the time, juries want to understand why did someone do something that just was so clearly criminal that makes no sense? When you learn that there's a financial motive to continue perpetrating the big lie, even when it's clear that it still is a lie, that gives a jury a higher comfort level. And I think in the deliberations process, it makes it easier for prosecutors to obtain a conviction. So the wire fraud charge involves creating a scheme where you in intend to defraud people with false information. And you can do it, as you've mentioned, via email, but it can also involve radio or television. Lots of great options here for Jack Smith to pursue because we know Trump was trying to get people to continue to give him money uh, on a variety of different media in order for him to be able, as he said, to pursue um, a fair outcome in the election when, in fact, he knew he had lost. It's a very compelling case. You know, it sounds like from the Post reporting, Sue, that um, investigators may be pursuing a strategy similar to the one used to charge Steve Bannon in his build the wall grift. Yeah. What is so disturbing and unusual in all of this is the fact that so much of the Trump criminal 
action comes back to making money. Just this desire to profit off of anything and everything, apparently. And remember Bannon got pardoned for that, and now he's facing another action yes. in the state court. But I, I just have to go back to it. And that time after the, the after the election between January 6th, it was just you were getting bombarded. I get bombarded like on a regular basis with Donald Trump fundraising emails. And that was exceptional. And I don't know if you remember it, too. Yes. But it was just email after email after email. And remember, there were stories. The New York Times did a great one where people were paying him and then they, they kept charging the credit card against yes. their wishes. They like, entered into just, agreements where their right. cards would be charged in subsequent months after they had made Right, and, and it's going to be interesting just to see what Jack Wagner, or what, Jack what, Smith. sorry, finds on that, just in terms of the, uh, you know, he's going in there and he's going to look at, you know, what what did the emails say? Were there legal counsel on it saying maybe don't? Were there fact, fact checkers saying don't say it? I mean, he's going to be able to get so much information um, together, hopefully, to we, be we able to see. We played some of it on this yeah, show last, last night. night. Trump, was, organ- yeah. Trump officials literally saying there's no there no there when it comes to the voting yeah. machines. Yeah. And then the emails fundraising off That's of potentially best. fraudulent yeah. voting machine results. It goes on and on. Suzanne Craig, Joyce Vance, it is great to have you both on the show. Thanks for your time tonight. Coming up, the fallout from Trump's family separation policy continues. There are still thousands of children without their parents and some of them are American citizens. But next, do you like woke-free beer? You can buy it. Comedian and former U.S. Senator Al Franken will join me to take a look at red states gone wild. Stay with us. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Let me uh, say something to all you and be as clear and concise as possible. was musician Kid Rock last week in a MAGA hat literally shooting 30 racks of Bud Light beer with a semi-automatic rifle. In case you missed this week's right-wing culture war, conservatives are freaking out that Bud Light sponsored an ad featuring transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Amazingly, and kind of impossibly, it gets worse. America's been drinking beer from a company that doesn't even know which restroom to use. That's why I created Conservative Dad's ultra-right, 100% woke-free beer. Stop giving money to woke corporations that hate our values. Yeah, yeah, totally. Don't you hate when there's woke in your beer? 
For now, just $20 plus shipping and handling, you can own the libs with a sixer of woke-free beer. And the thing is, this is everything now. You can buy $6 bars of woke-free chocolate, or you can pay extra for conservative cell phone service. It's really just repackaged regular cell phone service from carriers like T-Mobile just to own the libs. Conservatives are creating their own little conservative world for themselves. And it's funny, or sort of sad funny, when it's stuff like beer and chocolate and it's clearly all just a big hustle, but it does not stop there because red states are now creating a very different America. Today, today Florida's legislature passed a ban on most abortions after six weeks. Governor DeSantis has already said he will sign that into law, despite the fact that polls show 75% of Florida residents and even 61% of Florida Republicans oppose a six-week ban. That will bring the tally to 13 states with full abortion bans, plus Georgia and Florida with their six-week bans. That's despite the fact that six in 10 Americans believe abortion should be legal in most cases. In this year's legislative session, 14 Republican-controlled states have passed some form of anti-LGBTQ rights law. It all means that your lived experience as an American, what kind of civil rights you have, now basically depends on who runs your state. In Tennessee today, State Representative Justin Pearson was sworn back into the state legislature after Pearson and another black Democrat were expelled by the Republican-controlled House for speaking out for gun safety reform. Republicans basically took away the representation of 130,000 Tennesseans because they didn't like that they were protesting for reforms after a mass shooting. After the civil rights gains of the 1960s and 70s and the social progress of the first part of this millennium, Republicans are taking it upon themselves to use any means necessary, whether Democratic or not, to reverse course. Joining us now is Al Franken, former senator from Minnesota, fresh off hosting The Daily Show and hosting the Al Franken podcast. Senator Franken, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. I read the beer. So I'll just ask you, do you do you like woke or woke free beer? Both. It depends which is hoppier. Yeah. (laughs) Which one? is? This is so stupid. And I, those things will last a day or so or a couple of days. But the, 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 what amazes me are these red st- are these states that are passing these six-week laws like in Florida, mm-hmm. et cetera, and the people don't want it there. And what was interesting is before Dobbs, yeah. uh, this was a, a one-party uh, one issue. This was the you know, Republicans issue. They would vote on it. They would vote on it. They, they are, these are one issue people. Now, after Dobbs, there are a lot of one issue people the other way. In fact, maybe more. And they include Republicans, as you were saying, but also a lot of Democratic young people and women and men and men and that's going to be their one issue. Uh, and in some cases, it'll be a lot, just a lot of people's issue issue. Yeah. It'll just be an issue. Well, it clearly, I mean, it's, it's changing the, it's changing the reality of off year elections and midterm elections, right? This, yeah. the Dobbs has electrified the American public. But if you think about the next election is not an off year election. No. You're electing senators and you're electing presidents. So you're electing judges. Yeah. And if you're electing federal judges, this is going to be this doesn't play well in Michigan. It doesn't play well in Wisconsin, as we saw in the Supreme Court vote there. It doesn't play well in 
Minnesota. Doesn't play well in Pennsylvania. This is uh, this is re-erecting the blue wall. Yeah, but I mean, I, and I get that, right? You're seeing the tangible results of this position that Republicans have staked out for themselves, but it's not dim their enthusiasm. I mean, that I think is what's so confounding, right? It's really clear well, that abortion is a terrible issue for Republicans because they're at odds with the American public. And yet today... Ron DeSantis, who has aspirations. He wants the nomination. But right. They keep doing it. And the reality is there's the political question. There's also the human question. There are people who need access to reproductive choice all over this country who aren't going to get it. There may be people who die in the course of illegal abortions. Right. He he wants the nomination. He doesn't care about about actually winning. No, he doesn't care about people. Is it surprising? There was a day and age when Republicans would look and say, OK, we got to dial it back on this. They are full steam ahead on this in, in, instead. And to me, it seems like it coincides with an increasingly aggressive Republican Party that is yeah. ready to employ any tactic at once just to a own the libs, cement party, po- party power and 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 sort of stake its primacy culturally, which is very different than sort of tactical strategic game plan that used to dictate a lot of the party's moves. It's a, it, to me, it's a losing strategy, clearly a losing strategy. And again, they're alienating the people who, OK, didn't really care about abortion that much because they always assumed Roe would not be overturned. Yeah. Well, since it was. That became their issue, the number one right. issue for a lot of those people. Yeah. And for a lot of other people, it became a, 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 a big issue. Maybe not their only issue. And it's like guns. Guns is less becoming a single issue where people who really care about their guns are going to vote for guns. There's people more and more people are looking at this and going, I this is ridiculous. We've got to do something about background checks. Come on. Do you do you worry at all as someone who used to serve in the Senate that and again, setting aside the sort of political stakes of all of this in in terms of what all of this increasingly aggressive legislating and anti-democratic maneuvering is doing to the population in terms of, you know, you have folks who may be liberal leaning Democrats living in red states who increasingly find themselves in a hostile environment. And maybe the inverse is true for people who are conservatives living in blue states. And does it feel to you like we are eventually um, sorting ourselves into deeper blue and deeper red states? Because, you know, you look at Kid Rock, who's so incensed over a Bud Light ad that he has to shoot up uh, with a semi-automatic rifle, cans of Bud Light. This person does not want to live in New York City, right? In the same way, if you are a trans person that is finds yourself in Florida, maybe you're thinking, now's the time to get out. I mean, I just wonder what that does to an American public that increasingly cannot, does not share the same values or facts and increasingly the same zip code. Yeah, we're, we're doing nothing to bring people together. We're just always dividing people and we are getting more separate. We're more living more in our different areas that are red or or blue it's and this has been happening for quite a while hasn't it do you think it's getting worse yeah it seems to be uh, <laughs> it, it does yeah i mean i and i'm not trying to draw a false equivalence because i don't know that the same aggression i it is not like the embrace of anti-democratic tactics well, no is- i mean you don't want to do a false equivalence between crazy <laughs> Well, excuse me, like what happened in Tennessee and kicking those two guys out, which is crazy. Yeah. Or like 
you elect a new <clears throat> Supreme Court justice in in, uh, in Wisconsin, and suddenly uh, de- uh, Republicans in the state legislature are talking about, you know, we could recall her. Mm-hmm. We could recall her before she's sworn in. Yes, exactly. Um, That's not how democracy works. Boy, is it not. And it looks kind of like what it is, yeah. which is uh, crazy and stupid. Um, but it's Extreme. also it, it, it is happening. I mean, it continues to happen. And, I, and in and in Georgia, where they've been talking about getting rid of Fonnie Willis, that well, they, they could pa- recall they her. Passed a law where they can recall prosecutors, yeah. and it, we will see what happens down in Georgia if and when she makes a charging decision on Donald Trump and his efforts to subvert the 2020 election. Interesting that subverting democracy is met with a potential plan to subvert democracy. There's just an escalation in how far gone the Republican Party. I mean, when they call January 6th a le- legitimate political discourse, <laughs> I mean, it, it's uh, it's close to parody, but it's not because it's not funny. It, 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 yeah, that is that is the fact. From one funny person to a not funny person, it is not funny. Al Franken, it's good to see you, sir. Thanks for your time. You're today. not not funny. I mean, that's a compliment. I don't think so. (laughs) And we'll leave it there, folks. We have still more ahead this evening, including the latest on new court rulings and how they are affecting access to the most commonly used medication abortion pill. New restrictions could go into effect soon. But first, Trump bended to political pressure and rescinded the family separation policy back in 2018. But today we are still learning about the extent of the chaos it created. That is just ahead. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. When you look back on the Trump administration, several things probably come to mind. But its zero-tolerance family separation policy provokes a fairly specific, indelible image. Hundreds of children, some as young as infants, in large metal cages with only foil sheets for blankets after being taken from their parents. The administration's rationale was that by intentionally breaking these families apart, it would discourage people from attempting to cross the southern border. Those images led to outrage both here and abroad, and intense political backlash forced the Trump administration to rescind that policy just a few months after it was formally enacted. 
After a federal judge ordered the government to reunite the families, we learned that about 5,500 children were taken from their parents. And that reunification process has been a disaster. Some separations have lasted weeks, some of them have lasted years, and to this day, there are still children who remain unaccounted for. But we learned this week, thanks to a New York Times report, which cites lawyers and advocates working with the government to reunite some families, we learned that as many as a thousand of those children who were separated from their parents are United States citizens. Unlike foreign-born children who were taken to federal shelters and entered into federal databases, Many of these U.S.-born children were placed in state foster care systems, and it was left up to state family courts to decide how to handle the cases, which has in turn led to a patchwork of records that the government is now trying to sift through to find these kids. One immigration advocate told The Times that while she knows of 226 American children sent to Child Protective Services in California— Records for children sent to foster care in Arizona and New Mexico and Texas do not exist. So U.S. citizens, children, essentially lost by their own government at the direction of their own government. The ACLU has an ongoing class action lawsuit seeking damages for the trauma these families have endured as a result of the Trump era policy. The lawyer leading that case says immigration advocates have since asked that U.S. born children that we're now just finding out of it, that they be included. Now, this is all coming as the Biden administration plans to rescind another Trump-era immigration policy next month. That policy, which is called Title 42, has allowed border agents to turn away migrants ostensibly to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The appalling consequences of the Trump administration's action on immigration are something the current administration must or should grapple with as it reportedly considers bringing back family detentions to combat a possible uptick in the number of asylum seekers arriving at the southern border once Title 42 winds down. Stay tuned. Up next, as the future of abortion medication remains uncertain, Florida is on track to make abortion access even harder to obtain. Stay with us. Dozens of protesters gathered at Florida State House today in Tallahassee as lawmakers debated a bill that would ban abortions in the state after six weeks of pregnancy, with few exceptions. Now, six weeks is well before many people know they're pregnant. It is also not popular policy in the state of Florida. A recent University of North Florida poll showed 75 percent of respondents from both political parties opposed a six-week ban. That is why protesters swarmed the House chamber today, once interrupting debate over the bill and at another point throwing scraps of paper onto the House floor. So most people in Florida do not want this ban. But today, as we mentioned, the House, which has a Republican supermajority, passed the measure 70 to 40. Now the bill heads to Governor Ron DeSantis, who is expected to sign it. Once that happens, the South, which is already mostly an abortion desert, will become even more restrictive. And it is not just the South. Access to abortion pills, which are used in more than half of abortions in this country, that access is now up in the air nationwide because of that case originating in Texas. Late last night, a three-judge panel on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals made a decision that restricts the availability of mifepristone, one of the pills used in medication abortion, and it restricts it across the U.S. 
Now, the Fifth Circuit is not allowing the FDA's approval of Mifepristone to be entirely thrown out, but it is rolling back recent changes the FDA made to the drug's access. In effect, patients will no longer be able to get Mifepristone through the mail. They will have to make multiple in-person doctor visits instead. And they now only have up to seven weeks to access Mifepristone, which is three weeks less than before. And again, that's before some people, maybe many people, know they're even pregnant. Earlier today, the Justice Department promised to take the fight over Mifepristone all the way to the Supreme Court. But unless the court weighs in soon, it's Thursday, these major restrictions on abortion medications will go into effect as this Friday, as in tomorrow, turns to Saturday. In the meantime, a different federal judge in Washington state today is telling the FDA to do exactly the opposite of all this. Reiterating an order he issued last week, the judge told the FDA to make absolutely no changes to the availability of mifepristone, at least in the 17 states involved in the lawsuit before his court. So what does the FDA do with all this? And when should we expect SCOTUS to weigh in? Joining us now is the person with all of the answers. NBC News legal NBC News senior legal, senior legal correspondent Laura Jarrett. Laura, I, I need you in this hour. <laughs> First, help me understand what happens. Two judges, different states, one in Washington, one in Texas, saying the opposite thing. How does this get resolved? Uh, normally, it would go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would have something to say to the lower courts to give some uh, guidance about how to reconcile that conflict. Only thing is, the case does not live in the Supreme Court just yet, because the Justice Department hasn't actually submitted their brief, and neither has the pill manufacturer. Now, we could expect it any moment. They could do it tonight. They could do it tomorrow. But as you mentioned, the clock is ticking yeah, on this. And so it's a little bit surprising, given the time crunch that they're in, like the level of urgency you might expect to see. Um, obviously, the attorney general came out today with a strong statement about it, but that was hours ago. And so we're still checking on that brief and it's just not in yet. But the moment it is in the Supreme Court, then you could see some action pretty quickly. And so let's assume for the minute that the Justice Department puts it in tomorrow. You could see the Supreme Court uh, ruling, probably just an administrative say, which would just essentially put everything on pause yeah. for a minute, just like a cooling off period to get wipe away this Saturday deadline, if you will, you might see that stay as soon as tomorrow. Okay. What is your, I mean, let's unpack the ruling in the Fifth Circuit, right? Because the anti-choice movement is claiming this as a victory. I think some people might say, well, but Mifepristone is still available. Isn't that actually a victory for uh, people who are advocates of choice? It, It seems like once you actually get down to brass tacks, it is not a good ruling at all on a lot of things for a number of reasons for people who are advocates of uh, folks having reproductive choice. Well, the, the, the language in the opinion is striking, especially as it relates to standing, which is the legal right to sue in court. And on that score, the Fifth Circuit panel, two Trump appointees and a George W. Bush appointee, pound for pound, are in the plaintiff's camp here. And remember, this case is brought by advocacy groups and four doctors. It is not brought by women who say they were harmed by mifepristone. It's not even brought by doctors who say they prescribe mifepristones. It's brought by doctors who say when they were in the emergency room, they came across women who had bad effects. And so, therefore, in the future, they may somewhere at some point encounter some woman who had— Theoretically. Right. And so that typically is seen as quite speculative and not, not enough to get into federal court. Instead, the Fifth Circuit has said, that's just fine. And that's a view of standing that perhaps, we don't know, perhaps this Supreme Court may decide 
doesn't work for them. But we did, we don't know. You're looking at me skeptically because well, we know how the court has ruled on the issues the court, related to we, abortion. We know how the court has yeah. ruled on abortion and yeah. where they stand ideologically. Let's just say it. Sure. Right. But for a lot of reasons, just jur- jur- like jurisprudence yes. wise, this might bother. Them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because this is precedent setting aside the actual issue of abortion. Yeah. What is being proposed here legally is like really out of the ordinary. And for for the Fifth Circuit not to just toss this out on the on the standing alone, I think is a big shocker. And if you are, well, setting aside the people that are at, at the heart of this, for example, a drug manufacturer, you're you're like, what does it mean to get a drug approved in the United States of America in the year 2023? And it's right? why you see all these pharmaceutical companies, literally hundreds of them who have no relation to Mifepristone whatsoever, coming out in full force against the original Texas decision because they're so disturbed about what precedent it sets for every single drug across the entire country for all time. Now, whether or not like that's the type of thing a court is taking into account, I don't know. But you know who? taking into account is lawmakers. Yeah. And if you notice, there was a flurry of amicus briefs, which are just sort of people who have an interest in the case but aren't parties to the case. If you look at the amicus briefs filed by lawmakers, it's like over 240 Democrats signing on saying, block this Texas ruling. Yeah. Guess how many Republican lawmakers yes. sign on to that? Crickets? Less than 70, which just shows you sort of where positionally this falls. And it makes it the fault lines are very interesting for both the political side of this and the legal side. Well, but I got to say, we got to remind people that the beginning of this block, we're talking about Ron DeSantis on the verge of signing in uh, to effect in Florida, a six week abortion ban. Right. So it's like it's very it's very clear that it's optically, politically, strategically bad for Republicans. But they're full steam ahead on it, right? I mean, it's it yeah. hasn't had the intended chilling effect that it should if you care about the future of your party. And I mean, to say nothing of, you know, the freedoms of the American public. I, I do wonder on the SCOTUS question, on the Supreme Court question, there is a lot of news about Clarence Thomas and his, you know, dealings with Harlan Crow, a wealthy donor. A lot of people have very negative opinions of this court. Against that backdrop... Do you think that, I mean, do you think that Clarence Thomas um, scandal, because that's what I, I think it is, will affect the way Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts might vote here? Because they are aware of the hit reputationally that the court has taken, the sort of tenuous standing it has right now with the American public. Were they to not throw this case, case out on standing, it would further erode public confidence in the court. I think from a vast number of Americans, they're certainly aware of sort of the, of the issue of sort of the institutional credibility being at stake. But you have to remember, like this is a group of bodies as an institution that considers itself insulated mm-hmm. from the rest of the political oh, sure process. Do. Whether or not that's a like realistic view or not, I think you could take issue with. But they certainly do not see themselves subject to the same rules. They don't have an ethics code for a reason, yeah. right? And so, as much as Democratic lawmakers are pounding their fists about this stuff, unless they can figure out the political will to get some sort of new bill passed, that's not going to be on the table for this court. And so, sure, Justice Roberts can look at this and say, ah, I don't know if this is great for public confidence, but you haven't heard a peep out of him on this issue at all. Um, I was surprised to actually see Clarence Thomas issue a statement last week in relation to that first ProPublica report about all the yachts and all of the different gifts and all of that. But this, this is not typically something that at least publicly 
they are bothered by. Yes. They don't. I'm just wondering if it has a trickle-down effect in terms of what they may or may do to strike the ire and go against the will of the American public. We'll have to leave it there, though, my friend. This is very much a story we'll to be continued. Laura Jarrett, thank you, as always, for decoding the goings-on of what is happening in the U.S. judiciary system. We'll be right back. We have a programming note for you. This Sunday, MSNBC Films will present Leguizamo Does America, a new series from NBC News Studios. Over six episodes, the inimitable actor, film producer, and comedian John Leguizamo travels across the country taking a look at the diverse Latino cultures. He looks at food and politics and music and bodegas. The six-part series, which begins in New York City, premieres Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC and will stream on Peacock. But tomorrow, John will join me here in conversation right here in New York City ahead of the premiere of his series. We will have that show for you tomorrow. You will not want to miss it. That is us for tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow. 